Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental or emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he's gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as he or she personally chooses, while accepting full responsibility for his or her own individual thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and actions. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you're acknowledging that you, and only you, are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and actions. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome back to The Last Symptom. I'm Brian Barnett, the creator and host of The Last Symptom. Thank you for joining me this week. I made the mistake right before sitting down to record this show um, of looking up information about my old father-in-law. I think I've told you in the past that uh, when my big borderline personality disorder crisis all went down, that all that craziness, that uh, my, my father-in-law, my wife's father, had just recently been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And uh, today I got to thinking about him for some reason. I really loved him. I loved him a lot. And um, it, it was just terrible what I did to their fam- their whole family. Uh, I feel terrible about it. But I, I, did, I loved him. Um, I still only think very, very fondly of him. And so I did a quick search to see if I could find his obituary. It would have been in 2010, 2011, right, right around there when he was diagnosed with with the Alzheimer's and so I assumed that enough time had passed that uh, he had probably been done in by that and so right before I sat down to record this show I got the bright idea to see if I could find his obituary and I did and it's got me all choked up <laughs> so that's uh, that was my big <laughs> brilliant mistake here right before sitting down to do the show Uh, his name was Ray and I remember my ex-wife saying that as a child her and her brother didn't treat Ray too great their father well let's put it this way Ray did not come across as the most intelligent person in the whole world and I think that they were probably embarrassed by that a little bit or thought they could take advantage of it a little bit or whatever. But I found it very endearing. And I think a lot of other people found that quality about Ray very endearing. So there was a time we all went out together. We're having a get-together at somebody's house. And they had a pool table. I can't remember if it was in the basement or if it it was in a lower room anyway. And we were all down there playing pool on this pool table. Billiards, some of you might call it, out there. And the host had candles set up around this room. Well, I was playing pool at the time. And I looked over, and at one point I saw Ray. I felt like he was getting too close to the candle. He was kind of distracted by 
being in conversation with somebody else and but getting close to these candles and i he was wearing an outer shirt yeah he was wearing a t-shirt and an outer shirt and it was just kind of a passing thought that would come into my head boy he better be careful around those candles i went looked down and i continued playing pool next thing i know i look up and sure enough he's backed up into a candle and the his whole back his whole back is in flames I dropped everything and I run over there I start beating the fire out and would you believe he did not he didn't even feel it didn't get burnt nothing but his whole shirt on the back was just engulfed in flames and um, so I got a lot of credit for saving my father-in-law's life so what I wanted to tell you about Ray is that uh, when I looked him up on the internet I discovered that he had died in uh, January 2018 and it, that really choked me up and of course I tried to remember what was going on in my life in 2018 and then I did some math and figured out how many years after my di- divorce with with uh, his daughter that was and I tried to imagine what that meant as far as what that decade was like for them you know I, I get consumed thinking about how rough that decade was on me but really what I put them through ignorantly I should say because I I did I was not aware that I had borderline personality disorder and, and I was being compelled by forces that I had not yet had time to understand or anything like that but the decade was not easy for them either and so that's what's been on my mind and and I hate that I contributed to to that I hate that I contributed to their the whole family is very difficult and stressful time uh, for that during that period of time so uh, I think we were divorced in 2011 I think that's when it was finalized and Ray died in 2018 but if you imagine his condition would have been getting worse during during all those years so not easy the obituary for ray was real nice talked about him just like i remembered him said uh, he loved and was loved by pretty much everybody he come across and and that's how i feel about it i, I really feel that that is a a proper description of of ray and is his personality and his character he was a good man for me, you know, even though he died in 2018, I'm just I'm just finding out about it today. I mean, I assumed that he had or was getting close to that, but for me uh, today, it's like it's like I just got the news, you know, and and so I'm I'm processing all that. I'm processing all that and trying to come to terms with what it all means. Let's see, a bird. I wanted to tell you about a bird. I was just uh, posted a little video on the last symptom locals group here right before we got started, and uh, it was a story about a bird. Yesterday, I got the bright idea to show people these doves who had set up some nests right on my porch. And in order to get my camera up there, I had to put it on a selfie stick and reach it real far up 
and I wanted it to be impressive, you know, like National Geographic or something. And so I got the camera right up there next to these baby doves. It spooked them. They went flying off, and they weren't ready yet to be out of the nest. Oh, my goodness. I felt so bad about that. And I walked around all day yesterday just <laughs> angry at myself. Had no ladder to be able to get up there to get those birds back in their nest. And they're flopping around the yard, squawking for their mamas. At one point, I, I let my dogs out. I'd forgot that the baby birds were out there, so I let the dogs out. Of course, the first thing they do, zero in on one of those baby birds and try to kill it. So I had to stop that. And it was just a big old mess. Eventually, I got, I worked up a solution to get those birds back up in their nest with their mama. And they're doing fine. You'll be happy to know. So that was my day yesterday. I was watching a movie with my daughter. It was called The Lost Weekend. I think this is a movie from 1945. There's a part in the movie where, and it's all about alcoholism and the protagonist in the movie he's struggling real hard with alcoholism and and in fact in the time that this movie come out uh, it was just unheard of to see true depictions of alcoholism in movies before that they always you know the the drunkard was always portrayed in a comical light and um, so this movie I think it was the uh, it won the Academy Award for that year, and again I think it was 1945. But anyway, I was watching that movie, and uh, she happened to be with me. It was troublesome for her. I mean, it was bothersome for her. It it, it bothered her, and so she asked started asking me lots of questions about alcoholism and addiction and stuff like that. Now, keep, bear in mind, my daughter's only six, so I thought. Wow, what a really great experience. Me just sitting here watching this movie for myself, but she's here with me, and it's provoking all these questions, you know, that are important for parents and children to have. So while Eloise, my daughter, and I were watching this movie, The Lost Weekend, in the movie, there is a scene where he's trying to give up the alcohol, and he's going through withdrawals and everything, and he begins having these hallucinations, and it's just, it's just terrifying him and he begins screaming he for example he sees a bat that uh, he, he sees a, a rat coming through his wall and then he sees a bat in the room with him and then the bat attacks the rat and kills it and it's just all hallucination from where he's coming down off this withdrawal from alcohol and uh, it scared my daughter and she said boy that's that's scary and I said that is scary and she, of course, I was uh, drinking some bourbon. She said, boy, I, I hope that don't ever happen to you. And so I had to reassure her that alcohol in itself is not anything bad. And it's, uh, in fact, it, hardly anything on its own is bad. It's when it's abused and not used in moderation. So I try to set her uh, mind at ease, but then I thought, I want to assure her also that this part of the movie scaring her is is perfectly normal and nothing to be ashamed about or anything like that. Um, she's pretty good at that, you know, because she's grown up with me and I've always handled things that way. But uh, but I'm in the habit of doing that 
when she shares her feelings with me, especially a vulnerable feeling, like, the boy, daddy, that scares me. I like to try to find something that I can share with her so that it's a give and take, right? You revealed this about yourself. I want to show you that I appreciate you revealing that that part of yourself and that I don't think it's silly by sharing a vulnerability of my own. And so I told her a story about when I was a kid, I was staying over at a friend's house. This is a cowboy friend of mine who uh, rides rodeo and everything. Uh, his name's Eugene. I call him Yui. Real good lifelong friend of mine. But when I was a kid, I was staying at his house. He had like 19 brothers and sisters. Big old family. One night, we were watching Oliver Twist. Now, I know that there's been several iterations of this movie. So I'll have to, I'll have to do some homework to find out exactly the iteration I'm talking about. But what I remember in that movie we were watching it at night was that there's a scene in the movie I'm looking out my door right now and there is a baby rabbit right outside my door and a dove a mama dove down on the ground and the baby I'm not making this up I need to get a video of this the the mama dove this adult dove and this baby rabbit just come up nose to nose checking each other out I couldn't make something like that up as true as could be anyway I, I pulled out my phone to get some video of it but I think I just barely barely got a little bit of it so I'll share that with you on uh, my group on locals where were we at all right Oliver Twist there's a so we're, I'm watching this at my friend's house and there's a scene in the movie I th how old was I probably 12 uh, right around there there's a scene in the movie where somebody hits somebody else in the head with a log a log from the fire hits them real hard in the head I think and I think it was a woman as she falls down when she gets back up her eyes are crossed she'd been hit in the head that hard that one scene in the movie frightened me so much I could not get it out of my head and then of course after that we go to bed and we're lying in the dark and I'm, my mind is just playing that over and over and over again and I told my daughter about that I didn't tell her about the eyes crossing all I told her was that there was this scene in the movie she's like well what was it that scared you and I didn't want to give too many details because I didn't want to scare her and I said well there was just a scene where somebody hit somebody else and it, it was really scary well, why? What'd they hit him with? And I said, well, it was firewood. What was the part that was so scary? I said, well, the, what happened to the person who got hit was scary to me at that age. And, and I told her, man, I just went to bed, and I just lay in that bed, that going over and over again in my, in my mind. I couldn't shake it. And I said, it was really scared me. So it's perfectly natural this guy screaming and seeing things on this movie from 1945 called The Lost Weekend would be scary to you. That's a good habit to get into with your kids. Or with anybody, really. You guys with your girlfriends, girlfriends with your guys, um, husbands, wives, friends. You know, that that's what intimacy really is. You share a vulnerability with me, I'll share an honest-to-God vulnerability with you and we will bond 
over that sort of thing. We get to know each other that way. So I do it with my daughter. I try to do it with other people too that I feel close to. At any rate, the reason I'm telling you that is because as we were talking there, and I was trying to, because she wanted to know if that was still that sort of thing was still scary for me today. And I said, honestly, honey, it, it's not. Um, I've been exposed to too many tragedies in real life. As I've grown up, I've given, you know, I've kind of given away the these um, romantic preferences of the world, and I've learned to see the world as it really is, and there really is danger and evil and heartbreak and tragedy that happens in in the real world and i i said the older you get the more you accept terrible things and when i told her that i said you know what i really need to tell my audience that she says yeah daddy you should (laughs) it's a good that's a good one daddy so think about that the older you get and tell me if this ain't true for you too the more you accept terrible things now when we're talking about accepting a thing again we're not talking about agreeing with it what we're talking about is being able to see that that that's just the reality of it and now that's the reality I've I've got to deal with it's it's not pretending it away because we don't like the way that it makes us feel so you could say that the older you get the more you accept terrible things but in recovery when you're going from being an emotionally unhealthy person to being an emotionally healthy person, what could we say? We could say the healthier you get, the more you accept terrible things. So there are just terrible realities, you know, that uh, have to do with our parents, have to do with us, the terrible things we've done and our regrets around those things. That would be the thing to make a note of from this episode. The healthier you get, the more you accept terrible things. Doesn't mean we like them. It just means that we can see that 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 is a real part of life. And so our expectations of life allow for that, include that. That way, when terrible things do happen... We don't get the wind completely knocked out of us because we accept that life is a life in this world. I personally don't believe it's always going to be this way, but life in this world at least will always involve a combination of good and bad. And and that's just the reality, right? Whether we like it or not. In your culture, is it a celebrated and revered concept that family is supposed to come before everything? It is in the Appalachian culture. Blood is thicker than water is a real common saying around here. It basically, it just means that family is more important than anything else. Reminds me of a movie starring Kevin Costner and it was Wyatt Earp the movie and the one line in that movie that stuck out to me was where his wife is um, complaining to him about him putting his brothers above her and he says this I had to look this up and 
jot it down word for word. Bessie Earp, the wife says, we are your wives. Don't we ever count more than the damn brothers? And Kevin Costner, as Wyatt Earp says, no, Bessie, you don't. Wives come and go. That's the plain truth of it. They run off. They die. Basically, reflecting that same attitude, right? That there's nothing more important than family. Family is everything. The reason I'm talking about this is because I saw, um, I come across a page by a Puerto Rican girl who had this catchy quote that probably a lot of people thought, wow, that's heavy and good and expresses some really great things. The her quote on her page went like this familia lo más importante translation family is the most important thing so again i ask you it culturally is this your attitude on things it seems like a nice thing but how about when it comes to emotional health and abuse of families how about when it comes to your emotional health and family your whole family not just your parents but your extended family is the cause of you being emotionally unhealthy because emotional health runs throughout that family and family is the thing keeping you from becoming healthy how about then is family still the most important thing well at some point I had to make a decision myself about family and uh, it wasn't an easy decision because in my culture when you don't put family first it's considered an utter betrayal nobody thinks good things about you (laughs) for doing it and it's considered an absolute and total betrayal by the whole family so I shouldn't say that it was a hard decision for me to make it was just an unpleasant decision it was a decision I did not enjoy making but what I did was I looked at my situation once I truly understood where all of my emotional unhealth had come from this where my emotional disorder had been born I began to see plainly all the unhealthy aspects of of my not just immediate family but my larger family I asked myself what is most important to me and the conclusion I reached was that nothing was more important than me being emotionally healthy. Nothing was more important than that. Because unless you're emotionally healthy, you can't be happy. Not in any true sense. And when I'm talking about that form of happiness, I'm really talking about contentment. You know, underlying contentment. Nobody can be content while at the same time being mired in emotional unhealth, emotional disorder, being in a, you know, toxic environment putting oneself continuing to put oneself into these toxic environments and I knew I could only make decisions for myself couldn't make decisions for my family doesn't mean that I stopped loving them because I don't really want to have um, dealings with with my family and it's not total so for example it's not like I never drop in on my family or never do anything like that you know uh, there was a funeral funeral here recently i went to the funeral and even at the funeral i i could plainly see 
all the emotionally unhealthy interactions and dealings with each other that that my family was having my larger family cousins uncles aunts that sort of thing and and i just felt very relieved that i don't purposely and frequently expose myself to that anymore first of all when you're trying to get healthy you're already primed and conditioned to think in certain way in certain unhealthy ways and to share certain unhealthy attitudes it when during recovery you continue to regularly expose yourself to those sorts of influences and environments it is very very hard to escape to escape that and and acquire clear thought new perspectives to understand really the poison that that is so from very early on it was total i completely withdrew from from my family had no interactions with them for years now on the other side of authentic recovery i still don't expose myself to that because i don't enjoy it it's not it doesn't feel right to me and i don't enjoy it it's it's not pleasant for me but i still love my family right so i do make allowances for going to visit them and things like that but um, it's very rare and brief it's usually pretty brief now it used to be that i'd go and just spend a whole day with family uh now it might be an hour or so a couple times a year that's about it so think about that blood thicker than water family is everything i'd like you to challenge that family is not everything the most important thing is emotional health nothing matters more than emotional health you can't even have a relationship with god if you're not emotionally healthy well let's say this you can't have a a healthy relationship with god if you're not emotionally healthy you can't have a healthy relationship with yourself if you're not emotionally healthy you can't have a healthy relationship with spouses with workmates Uh, everything depends on on being emotionally healthy Let's do some announcements. The Last Symptom website, thelastsymptom.com. I've got paid and f- uh, free and paid resources there. The paid resources, which support my ongoing efforts here, are one-on-one phone calls and Zoom calls with me. Also, there's the two-week intensive, The Last Symptom Fundamentals course. Uh, it's comprehensive and a lot of information in that course. Uh, it's pre-recorded, so and it's a video course so when you sign up for the course you get to take it at your pace but you will see me on a video presenting information preventing uh, presenting slides and those sorts of things and it's all about uh, authentic recovery from emotional disorder borderline personality disorder specifically but would apply for other things as well would you like to join our online community i hope you will it's over at the last symptom dot locals.com or you can download the locals.com app and search for the last symptom by brian barnett if you want to keep it real simple just go over to the last go into the resources tab everything you need is there orange slices are condensed video highlights of this show in brief five to ten minute links they appear on rumble youtube and of course on the locals group Again, links are available at thelastsymptom.com. I record most episodes of this show now as video in addition to just the audio-only version. 
And so if you'd like to see me present this, this show rather than just listen to me, you can do that over at uh, Rumble or also on YouTube. Please subscribe to the channel and like like all the videos. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> let's put it this way. Like the videos that you like. Press like and share them. Uh, doing that allows the algorithm to offer that content to more people and then more people benefit from it so I appreciate you doing that let's see here generation loss have you ever heard that term generation loss I wonder if you can guess what that is just just from its name generation loss well think back to the 80s and 90s when everybody was using copy machines you remember those days and fax machines and stuff like that if you take an image, like say a drawing on a piece of paper, and you run that through a copy machine, that's one generation, a second generation. Now, if you take the copy and you put that in the copy machine and you run that through the copy machine, now you got a third generation. Take the, that copy out, you put it in the copy machine and you make a copy of it. Now you got a fourth generation. What is the phenomenon that happens the more you do this? Well, most of you will remember doing this with a copy machine. What would happen is that with each generation, each new generation of copy run through the copy machine, what you would end up with is a more blurry, less faithful image from the original, right? That's generation loss, and it's still happening today. How often have you uh, seen a meme or something on Facebook or on social media, and it looks blurry, or it looks like it's been cropped too many times, and and the the resolution of the image looks kind of lousy? Well, what you're looking at is generation loss. Somebody created the meme and put it on the Internet. Somebody copied it, put it on their social media. Somebody saw it on their social media, copied it, put it on their social media. As this process goes along, what has happened is that the meme has, uh, the, the quality of the meme, the resolution, has slowly been getting worse and worse until eventually you just end up with a big blob. So that's generation loss. If you're a God-fearing person, generation loss explains why people at the beginning of the Bible lived a whole lot longer than we do today. Yeah, that's generation loss. When you read about Methuselah living, what was it, 900 years or something like that, you say, if people today point to things like that and say, see there, that's just ridiculous. That's just ridiculous. That's not true. But if you're a, if you're a person who has faith in the Bible and, and in God, then you understand why Methuselah lived 900 years old. Because she, Adam and Eve were just shortly before her. So she was not that far removed from perfection. If you'll remember, Adam and Eve were created perfect. They would have lived forever had they not sinned. So then the people who were born shortly after Adam and Eve, they were much closer to that perfect state, and therefore they lived much, much longer. Thousands of years later, we get to us. All of this generation loss has been happening, and we you know the strongest of us reach 80 or 90 years old if we're fortunate um, the really 
strong among us might live 120 but they're so it's so rare that it's not something that you can really plan for in your own life is it how about authentic recovery when one devotes himself or herself to truly ending the cycle of emotional disorders and emotional unhealth that permeate families well the nice thing about authentic recovery and ending the cycle of unhealth and disorder in families is that generation loss can be brought to a screeching halt when we're talking about emotional issues and so I've come up with a new term for example in my case everybody in my both sides of my family both sides of my extended family uh, terribly emotionally unhealthy I grew up thinking it was completely normal all those attitudes and all those ways of thinking and ways of the types of relationships were completely normal type of behaviors type of treatment towards others totally normal and then I escaped that saw all the ways that that those attitudes are just terribly unhealthy I replaced I, I gave up those attitudes in my own life and I adopted brand new attitudes healthy attitudes that have completely changed my life and have helped me raise until now a daughter who is herself perfectly emotionally healthy everybody comments on how self-assured she is and how friendly she is and how confident she is and how uh, she, she's happy she seems to be and content and how she doesn't seem to be operating on any type of stress or insecurity so what have I done to generation loss in the emotional sense I brought it to a screeching halt haven't I so we need a new term don't we and one, the, the new term that I've come up with is new healthy generation fidelity. What do you think? New healthy generation fidelity is what happens when you become the person to break that cycle in what has probably run through both sides of your family for generations. And now you've created something brand new from, from the brand new beginning. And I call that new healthy generation fidelity it doesn't suffer from generation loss when you pass on healthy attitudes to your offspring and they grow up who are they going to look for in a partner healthy partners not unhealthy partners because it's not going to feel comfortable to them it's they're not going to be drawn to that so they're going to end up they're going to end up with somebody else who is healthy they're going to have children how are they going to raise their children with unhealthy attitudes or with healthy attitudes healthy attitudes so it's in this way that healthy attitudes and also unhealthy attitudes get passed on through generations it's emotional disorders are all in attitude that how who else is going to tell you a truth like that that's so simple and so profound all emotional unhealth and all emotional disorders are contained in attitudes and it is attitudes that families pass on that's why my grandfather had his emotional disorders he passed that on to my mother my mother passed it on to me on my father's side of the family the same thing his father 
emotionally unhealthy, passes on emotionally unhealthy attitudes to his father, or to my father. My father grows up, has his family, passes it on to me. So it can be brought to a screeching halt, but it takes some real determination inside and uh, an appreciation for what matters the most. And it ain't family. The flower duet. Have you ever heard of it? Some people consider it the most perfect piece of music ever written. The flower duet. I'd never heard of it. (laughs) Shows you how cultured I am. I had never heard of the flower duet. But when I come across it and I read some things about it, first thing I did was uh, hunt it down and give it a listen. And it ain't bad. I don't think it's the best ever written. But again, I'm not a, a skilled classical musician or anything like that. It's it's very nice. But I think it's like one of those pieces of music that really classically trained musicians find a deep appreciation for. But this person was telling a story about how... Oh, okay, so this was by Pete McGrain for the Epoch Times, dated uh, March 5th, 2022. So Pete McGrain, for the newspaper, the Epoch Times, was talking about how he had a friend come up to him and say, I just heard the best musical piece that I've ever heard in my entire life. And uh, he says, let me guess, it's the flower duet. And the other person was like, oh, how'd you know that? So apparently this is a a piece of music, like I say, that many musicians, when they hear it, really love. But he had this to say about the flower duet. Not particularly about the flower duet. It was really, it's about how there's always something better waiting. No matter how beautiful a thing is, no matter how wonderful a thing seems, the longer you live, the more opportunities you will have to come across something and discover something even more beautiful. So Pete McGrain for the Epoch Times says this, There's always another piece of music hiding just around the corner, waiting for a curious ear to find it. That is how blessed we are. For every act of mindless madness we can attribute to the human race, we can look back at a reservoir that is positively brimming over with our higher expressions, with incredible wisdom and beauty expressed through literature, art, and music. That treasure trove is deep and wide. And so I assured my dear friend that it was a mathematical certainty that she would find yet another incredible melody that she would be sure was the most beautiful piece of music ever written. Ergo, the flower duet would become the second. But how incredible would that be? So we talked a little bit about tragedy in life earlier on and sadness. and So I wanted to share this uh, beautiful thing with you. Oh, we also talked about how acceptance, accepting that life is made up of, at least in this world, is made up of both good and bad. And and acceptance is us just living with that knowledge that that that's true that that that's what we can expect in this world so 
a little bit of tragedy, a little bit of beauty right there. Here's the poem I've been wanting to read to you for a while. It's called Tiger. Tiger. Let's see. The it's called The Tiger, and Tiger is spelled T-Y-G-E-R. It's by English Romantic poet William Blake, 1757 to 1827. And I'm going to tell you up front that it's my understanding that this poem is about the devil. So as we're reading the poem, just keep that in mind. We're not most likely talking about a literal tiger here, but more likely the devil. Here's the poem. It goes, Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer, what the chain, in what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil, what dread grasp, dare its deadly terrors clasp? When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? The Tiger by English Romantic poet William Blake, 1757 to 1827. I was reading an article about Socrates. You know who he is? Socrates. Bill and Ted from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure they talk about Socrates take him through time and everything some people know him as Socrates Socrates I was reading an article about him and it reminded me about having borderline personality disorder being emotionally healthy unhealthy pardon and escaping that and this, this article about it reminded me of that also the, the whole process of becoming healthy you know asking questions uh, using my brain to sort things out to see connections between things in the article it said Socrates walked the street of Athens and engaged its citizens in ethical dialogues featuring questions such as what is freedom what is justice what is courage many of these dialogues would end with other people opposite Socrates having to change their preconceived answers because Socrates line of questioning which often exposed their lack of wisdom in the famous allegory of the cave from Plato's Republic Socrates suggests that reality for us is like being chained in a cave and being made to watch a wall on which shadows are cast by a flame behind us can you imagine that being in a cave and there's a fire somewhere behind you that is casting shadows on the cave wall opposite you and you're you're watching these shadows you're trying to figure out what the shadows are doing what what's going on from from watching those shadows the article says uh, we all mistake the shadows for the truth of reality can you make some comparisons there with being emotionally unhealthy and living with these unhealthy attitudes the way you perceive 
for example, the nature of feelings, self, those sorts of things, it's almost like you're watching the shadows on that cave wall, and you're confusing the shadows as being a perfect representation of reality. But what we don't realize when we're in that position is that the actual truth doesn't begin there with the shadows. The real truth begins with the flame behind us. There's another truer world happening that we're not observing. Very profound, isn't it? Um, I certainly, immediately, as soon as I read that, I thought, boy, boy, that's what it was like. It really was. When I was emotionally unhealthy, my understanding of life in the world was one thing, and I was certain about it. But when I come, when my eyes were open, when I gained insight, and I escaped the, that thinking, that very that prison really then I it was just like that it was just like I began to see wait these are just shadows on a wall over here's the flame and over here's the the truth so it says the philosopher king is the one who frees himself from the cave sees the sees the flame as the source of the shadows and the reality of the world beyond the confines of the prison the question remains, how many of the previous prison inmates could accept the truth of the cave while still being shackled within? That's from uh, Socrates and the Freedom of Discourse by Eric Bess, March 7, 2022, the Epoch Times. Very, I, lo- I really like the imagery there. And for me, at least, it really accurately describes what it was like to escape those um, distorted concepts, those distorted attitudes, distorted thinking, distorted understanding of things. Um, I never want to go back here. I want to help you stop focusing on the shadows on the cave wall, realize that the, the flames are where all the answers are. That's where you're going to see the real nature of things and you, so that you can escape it too and start helping other people do the same. Folks, I appreciate the time that you've spent with me today. I'm going to edit this and get it out to you. And uh, I hope you have a wonderful weekend. I look forward to talking at you again next week. Take care. Mm-hmm.